Just a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its thousands of selections, and I use it all the time for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, we receive a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible, and whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 103 of History of the Marine Corps, the Battle of Wake Island. This episode continues our discussion on the Battle of Wake. After Japan's initial attack, all hands on the island prepared for a second raid. This episode gets into Japan's first attempt at an amphibious landing, subsequent air raids, and we end with Wake surrender. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Last week, we started to get into the first day of the attack on Wake. It's hard to visualize the battlefield only by listening to me run my mouth, so I created a map and posted it on our social media sites to help with visualization. I'll also post it on our website under each episode. The first day of the attack was devastating for the troops on Wake. An ensign in the Japanese Navy documented the excitement of the aviators when they returned. Quote, the pilots in every one of the planes were grinning widely. Everyone wiggled his wings to signify bonsai. Unquote. A few hours after the attack, all hands on wake prepared the island for another assault. There wasn't a mortuary on the island, and the bodies of the dead were moved from the hospital and stored in empty, refrigerated containers until there was time to dig graves. Troops also began the difficult task of foraging for any tools or parts that could be salvaged and keep the remaining aircraft operational. Marines constructed additional fighting holes, and unit commanders found replacements for the Marines who died during the initial attack. Major Paul Putnam replaced Graves, who was incinerated when a bomb hit his plane, with Lieutenant John F. Kinney. After he assigned him to this position, Putnam said, quote, We have four planes left. If you can keep them flying, I'll see that you get a medal as big as a pie. Unquote. Kinney responded, Okay, sir, if it is delivered in San Francisco. Putnam ordered all pistols, Thompson submachine guns, gas masks, and steel helmets to be handed out throughout the island. He also established machine gun posts at the end of each runway and the command post. The following day, all hands were at general quarters. Communication lines, weapons, fire control instruments, and observation posts were manned. 
by 0545, the four Grumman Wildcats took off over Peacock Point. They scouted 60 to 80 mile sectors along the routes the Japanese would most likely attack from. But the Wildcats didn't find the enemy. When they returned a couple of hours later with negative reports, the threat level eased up a bit. Only half of the guns were required to be manned at each position, freeing up many Marines to work in other parts of the island. Several civilians reported for military duty as well. Although tensions were high that morning, everyone believed Japan wouldn't attack until 1100. The assumption was based on the most likely location of the Japanese force. In 1914, Japan annexed the marshals from Germany. They built military bases on some of these islands, and with a morning takeoff, Japanese bombers would reach wake around 11 o'clock. At 11.45, bombers came from the south again, but the Marines were prepared for them this time. The remaining planes of VMF-211 were in the air, and the anti-aircraft batteries were manned and ready. Machine guns released bursts of three shots to help spread the word of the incoming attack throughout the island. Pilots, 2nd Lieutenant David Clewer and Technical Sergeant William Hamilton headed towards some of the leading Japanese planes as they approached the island. They were the first to shoot down a bomber. The three-inch guns also opened up and scored their first kill. Japanese bombers traveled up the east leg of the island. They targeted Echo Battery, damaging a three-inch gun in the process, and headed to the civilian site located at Camp 2. The hospital was directly hit and caught on fire. The civilian and Navy barracks, garage, blacksmith, Storehouse and machine shop were demolished within a few minutes. The bombers also hit a radio station, destroying the Navy's radio gear. As the Japanese flew off into the horizon, Marines obliterated two more of their planes. Japanese records note another 14 sustained flak damage. The destruction to Wake was just as bad as the first day. The hospital burned to the ground while two surgeons tried to save as many patients and medical supplies as possible. Four Marines and 55 civilians died during this attack. After three days of air bombardments, Wake was in a bad place. In Hawaii, Admiral Kimmel and his staff assembled Task Force 14 to help U.S. troops and civilians at Wake. It consisted of one carrier, three heavy cruisers, nine destroyers, and a seaplane tender. He also sent Task Force 11, made up of similar ships, 800 miles south of Wake to attack an enemy base at Jaluit, an island in the Marshalls. The goal of this attack was to distract the Japanese and divert some firepower away from Wake. The task force included Marines from the 4th Defense Battalion, and they were chomping at the bit to help their brothers. The three days of aerial attacks were supposed to soften the island for an amphibious landing. Rear Admiral Sadamichi Kajioka was the commander of Destroyer Squadron 6. His chief of staff summed up the amphibious landing strategy, quote, In general, the plan was to have 150 men land on Wilkes Island and the balance, 300 men, on the south side of Wake Island to capture the airfield. 
the northeast coast was unsuitable for amphibious landings. We didn't think this was too favorable a place. The alternative landing plan was that in the event of bad winds on the south side of the island, we would land on the northeast and north coast. We expected to have a rough time and that we would have difficulty with the landing force of only 450 men. It was at the beginning of the war. We couldn't mass many men as we considered necessary, and it was planned in an emergency to use the crews of the destroyers to storm the beach. Unquote. At 23.15 on December 10th, the U.S. submarine Triton surfaced to charge her batteries. In the distance, her lookout spotted two flashes of light and a silhouette that looked like a destroyer. The Triton submerged, headed to the target, and fired four torpedoes. These were the first shots fired from a Pacific Fleet submarine in World War II. This destroyer was from Kajioka's fleet and was scouting the area. Kajioka left the marshals on December 8th with three light cruisers, six destroyers, and two patrol boats. Soon, Wake's lookout spotted the flickering lights as well. Major Devereux was notified of the incoming fleet, and he ordered the guns to hold fire until the ships were close to the island. At 0400, Major Putnam placed the four remaining aircrafts on alert. They were equipped with a 100-pound bomb under each wing and prepared to take off. At 0515, the Wildcats left the runway. Seven minutes later, Japan began its attack. The Japanese fleet slowly advanced, firing as they got closer. The Marines were still holding fire. The coastal guns couldn't reach the enemy, and they were ordered to wait. Firing prematurely would reveal their positions. Kajioka's fleet grew confident in the lack of fire. They changed course and traveled parallel to the island. Putnam authorized Marines to open fire when Japanese ships were 4,500 yards away from the guns. This attack surprised Kajioka, and multiple of his ships were hit by the initial salvo. He realized he was lured into a trap and retreated to a safer range. The 5-inch guns at Peacock Point fired their 50-pound rounds and scored a direct hit on the flagship. Lima Battery scored blows on one of the transports, causing the escorting destroyers to position themselves between the damaged vessel and the incoming fire. Marines 5-inchers also managed to send three salvos into the destroyer Hayate. One of the shots hit the rear torpedo mounts, causing a large explosion. The damage was devastating and the ship sank in minutes, with all 168 on board. The Japanese fleet was so preoccupied with the attacks from shore that they failed to notice the four Wildcats heading towards their location. One of the planes managed to drop its payload on another destroyer. The bomb ignited the depth charges that were unwisely stored on the deck of the Kisiragi, destroying the ship. All 157 on board would die. The fierce defense of Wake was the first tactical defeat of the Japanese Navy in World War II. This defense also marked the only time either side repelled an amphibious assault during the war. One of the Wildcats had its main fuel line cut from anti-aircraft fire. 
He managed to make it back to Wake, but landed short of the runway on the rocky beach. The crash destroyed the plane, and Marines were now down to three aircraft. This was a successful day for the Marines. They sank two ships, and another eight were hit. Post-war records would also confirm the death of 500 to 700 Japanese troops. All of this at the cost of four Marines wounded and the loss of a plane. Japan launched air raids on Wake for the next 12 days. Marines answered every attack with a ferocious response from the anti-aircraft batteries and the remaining planes from VMF-211. Although the pilots did an exceptional job, much of the aviation credits should go to the squadron's engineering section. 2nd Lieutenant John F. Kinney, Technical Sergeant William J. Hamilton, and Aviation Machinist Mate First Class James Hessen. Major Putnam commended these men in his report. Quote, these three, with the assistance of volunteers among the civilians, did a truly remarkable and almost magical job. With almost no tools, and a complete lack of normal equipment, they performed all types of repairs and replacement work. They changed engines and propellers from one airplane to another, and even completely built up new engines and propellers from scrap parts salvaged from wrecks. They replaced minor parts and assemblies, and repaired damage to fuselages and wings and landing gear. All this in spite of the fact that they were working with new types with which they had no previous experience and were without instruction manuals of any kind. Unquote. To add some color to Putnam's praise, the engine change he mentioned is an exceptional feat in and of itself. A Japanese bomber managed to hit the tail end of an aircraft, leaving the engine unharmed, but the plane on fire. The three men ran towards it, stripped the undamaged engine from the burning fuselage, and dragged it clear, all while under attack. What they accomplished was phenomenal. The Japanese raids gradually whittled away at the airfield and the island's defenses, which took a massive toll on morale. On December 17th, Commander Cunningham received a message from the 14th Naval District that sums up the military bureaucracy pretty well. Leadership wanted the status of the development projects recommended in the Hepburn Report. They wanted to know the date specific projects would be completed. Cunningham sent a reply that said Japan demolished half of his trucks and engineering equipment. Most of his diesel oil and commercial explosives were gone. The garage, blacksmith, and machine shops were all destroyed, and the morale of the 1,200 civilian contractors was terrible. He responded that if Pearl Harbor wanted deadlines met, they had better do something about the Japanese. On the 21st, enemy carriers approached with a new resource, Zero Fighters. The following morning, 39 planes headed towards Wake from the north. Captain Froiler and 2nd Lieutenant Carl Davidson jumped in the last two Wildcats and attacked. Davidson was fighting a dive bomber when a Zero lined up behind him. He was shot down and never seen again. Another Zero got behind Froiler and fired. Japanese rounds hit him in the back and the shoulder, and with little option, the injured pilot headed back to base. He crash-landed on entry, destroying the last plane. 
Without functioning aircraft, the remaining Marines of VMF-211 reported to the Defense Battalion as infantry. Wake's relief force was only 515 miles away when Japan shot down the last two Wildcats. Rear Admiral Frank Jack Fletcher was the commanding officer of the task force. He felt that the ships didn't have adequate fuel if they had to engage in naval combat, so he stopped to resupply his ships. This task force never made it to Wake. At 0250, Wake radioed in, quote, enemy apparently landing, unquote. And two hours later, quote, the enemy is on the island. The issue is in doubt, unquote. At 0811, the task force was only 425 miles away, and the acting commander of the Pacific Fleet ordered them to pull back. The men on board the Tangier and the Saratoga were furious. Troops were shocked about this decision, and emotions ranged from shame to anger. Some of the staff officers even pleaded with Fletcher. They asked him to disregard his orders and head towards Wake anyways. I can't imagine how horrible the situation must have been for everyone involved. Marines and sailors were so close to their destination, and knowing that their fellow brothers had been under attack for the past two weeks and couldn't do anything to help must have been excruciating. Now this is just speculation on my part, so take it with a grain of salt. But looking back, the task force probably would have been able to defeat the Japanese. Japan had four cruisers patrolling the east, but they didn't have escorts or air support. Fresh planes, combined with naval firepower, could have quickly taken out enemy ships. Japan's amphibious troops huddled around the island with no cover or concealment from aircraft. Many could have easily been picked off by planes, and a rested marine force could have taken care of the rest. But hindsight makes playing the should-have-would-have game a little easy, and at the time, the U.S. Navy didn't have the proper information to weigh their options. Radar wasn't established at wake, and the strength of the Japanese fleet wasn't known. They didn't want to risk losing the remaining ships of the Pacific Fleet and what they thought was a lost cause so they chose the option with the least risk. This was the right choice, but Fletcher was used as a scapegoat for the U.S. defeat at Wake, and he was villainized for abandoning the Marines. In his book, The Rising Sun in the Pacific, naval historian Samuel Elliott Morrison criticized Fletcher's decision to refuel and essentially blamed him for the fall of Wake. Morrison claims that the destroyers had enough fuel and thought Fletcher's decision was unnecessary. Lieutenant Commander Edwin Layton, the fleet's intelligent officer, condemned Fletcher. In his memoirs, Layton essentially called him a coward. He claimed that the slow response to Wake wasn't due to refueling, but from the, quote, yellow streak down his back, unquote. Navy Captain Arthur Davis described Fletcher to historian Gordon Prange as a, quote, a big, nice, wonderful guy who didn't know his ass from third base. Unquote. Over 1,000 men from Kajioka's Special Naval Landing Force hit the beaches of Wake. The Marines sent 50 caliber rounds towards the barges, hitting the magazine of Patrol Craft 33 and causing it to explode. The 1st Defense Battalion and VMF 211 fought where they stood, 
they formed a horseshoe around the last three-inch gun. Putnam's final orders were, quote, this is as far as we go, unquote. The Marines fought there for hours. A Japanese who fought on the island reported, quote, Wilkes Island was the scene of a fierce and desperate battle, unquote. The resistance Marines put up was impressive. When 100 Japanese soldiers captured a gun position, Captain Wesley Platt and a dozen of his men counterattacked. Another 25 Marines joined in and attacked from another front. These 37 Marines killed 94 out of the 100 Japanese soldiers and captured another two. The Japanese Navy concluded in a critique during the fight for Wilkes, quote, In general, that part of the operation was not successful, unquote. This is probably the understatement of the decade. But the number of Japanese on the shore far outweighed the number of Marines. 11 hours after Japan landed, Commander Cunningham felt that further fighting was futile and he surrendered the island. Before the capitulation, all units were ordered to destroy weapons and equipment. Major Devereux and Sergeant Donald Malik carried a white rag tied to a swab handle and walked the road. As they passed Marines in action, he ordered them to stop firing. At 10.15, Devereux reached Lieutenant Clywer and his three Marines. He informed the lieutenant that the island had been surrendered. One of Clywer's Marines didn't take the news well, and he replied, quote, Don't surrender, lieutenant. Marines never surrender. It's a hoax. Unquote. Clywer summed up his thoughts. Quote, it was a difficult thing to do, but we tore down our guns and turned ourselves over. Unquote. We rarely hear about the Battle of Wake Island in the Marine Corps, and I assume it's because Japan was victorious, at least with their second attempt to invade. I think this is a big mistake. I consider this battle as one of the most significant accomplishments by the United States Marines. Japan experienced the tenacity and ferociousness of Marines firsthand, and the comparative losses weren't even close. 81 Marines were killed or wounded during this battle, and 12 of their planes were lost. In contrast, some estimates place Japan's casualties at over 1,000. The Marines on Wake also took out four enemy ships and caused substantial damage to another eight. Marines destroyed 21 aircraft, and according to Japanese reports, another 51 were damaged during this battle. The survivors at Wake became prisoners of war. About 100 were used on the island as forced labor, and the rest were taken to camps in Japan and China. The performance by Marines at Wake brought confidence to other U.S. troops in the Pacific. Before Major Putnam was captured, he wrote in his final report, quote, All hands have behaved splendidly and held up in a manner of which the Marine Corps may well tell. Unquote. The American public support for the war grew. And during his State of the Union message in January 1942, President Roosevelt said, There were only some 400 United States Marines who in the heroic and historic defense of Wake Island inflicted such great losses on the enemy. Some of those men were killed in action and others are now 
prisoners of war. When the survivors of that great fight are liberated and restored to their homes, they will learn that 130 million of their fellow citizens have been inspired to render their own full share of service and sacrifice. When General Holcomb was asked about the Marines' unyielding defense at Wake during a press conference, he gave a Marine answer which I appreciate. What the hell did you expect? Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll get into the attack on Guam. This week's audiobook is Always Faithful, a story of the war in Afghanistan, the fall of Kabul, and the unshakable bond between a Marine and an interpreter by Thomas Schumann and Zainalah Zaki. The story of Schumann and Zach have been all over the news for months, and I was pretty excited when this book was released. When the United States abruptly ended the war in Afghanistan, thousands of Afghan citizens who helped during the war were left behind. This book is about Schumann's battle to get his friend and former interpreter out of the country. This is an excellent read and runs the gamut of emotions. Schumann and Zach do a fantastic job writing this book, and I have no doubt we'll be seeing a movie based on their story someday. You should pick up a copy, so when that day comes, you can be the one who says the book is better than the movie. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and tell us why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.